Connect and experience art at the Northfield Arts Guild. Visit our galleries, arts festival, and take in a performance at our theater featuring a full season of dramas, comedies, and musicals. The Guild's gift shop showcases unique art from over 100 local and regional member artists. Come enjoy music from the Cannon Valley Regional Orchestra or the 411 Concert Series. We invite you to explore your creativity in one of our classes. All are welcome at the Northfield Arts Guild. To learn how you can be a part, visit northfieldartsguild.org or call 507-645-8877. Art Zany, radio for the imagination, with your host, Paula Granquist, is brought to you by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts. And now, Art Zany, radio for the imagination. Good morning, this is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany, radio for the imagination. And we're here today. We're going to celebrate all things creating and stories. And of course, we're going to tune our imaginations together. And we're going to start with a little imagination exercise. You are in the kitchen. It happens in a flash. And at the same time, in slow motion, right before your eyes, the water glass slips from your hands and falls to the floor. I bet you can imagine the scene. One move and the unanticipated happens. You are holding the glass and then you are looking at the mess. It could happen to any one of us at any time. Maybe there's no after effect. Somehow, miraculously, the glass bounces on the floor and all you need to do is to wipe up the spilled water. It's just another moment in the day that will bleed with all the other twists and turns of the day. What if this is the start of the before and after The water glass falls, glass shatters, and this was the moment the earthquake shakes the ground underneath you. What if this is the moment someone bursts through the front door and startles you? Is this a welcomed guest or an intruder? Or maybe this experience of the glass shaking and falling to the floor might be the first symptom and the beginning of a new diagnosis. Or the scenario is completely different and the water glass falls, glass shatters, and this is the time that your spouse yells at you in front of your child and you see in her eyes that she needs you to make a choice. This is how the story begins. This is the splitting of life into the normal, quote-unquote, before and the now, the new after. I want to thank the character from Emil his name is the main character in the book we're going to be talking about from Vera Hiranandani for this image and the ways that it shook me. And I want to add, I think in, in Jeff's introduction, I added a couple extra letters to my typing when I sent him the note about my guest today. So no wonder it was a little challenging to pronounce. This splitting of life could happen to any of us at any time. Every day might be the day of the day before and after for you. And in the book, Emile and the After, the young boy, Emile, had learned things that could change as quickly as a glass of water falling to the floor and smashing to pieces. He wondered if this was how their lives would always be, suddenly moving from one place to another before something happened. That's a quote from the book on page 10. And I am thrilled to welcome to the show for another Art Zany Radio Conversation, author author Vera Hiranandani, to help us explore how a young boy in India in 1948 figures out the before and after of his life. Today in the Arts Annie Radio studio, I welcome author Vera Hiranandani to 
tell us about her new novel, A Meal and the After. This story is about a young Muslim and Hindu boy navigating uncertain times with his family in India in 1948. And it is a story that will connect with readers of all ages during our own uncertain times. You can learn more about Vera at her website, Vera, which is V-E-E-R-A, and her last name, H-I-R-A-N-A-N-D-A-N-I. I'll do that one more time. Vera, V-E-E-R-A-H-I-R-A-N-A-N-T-A-N-I.com. She's got several other books, and this book, A Meal in the After, is fantastic. Again, as I mentioned, it's the turn of 1948. Emil and his family are trying to make a home in India, now independent of British rule. Both Muslim and Hindu, this 12-year-old boy is not sure what home means anymore. The memory of the long and difficult journey from their hometown in what is now Pakistan lives with him. And despite having an apartment in Bombay to live in and schools to attend, life in India feels uncertain. Nisha, his twin sister, suggests that Emil begin to tell his story through drawings meant for their mother, who died when they were just babies. Through Emil, readers witness the unwavering spirit of a young boy trying to make sense of a chaotic world and find hope for himself and a newly reborn nation. I just love this book. I cannot wait to share with you my conversation that I had with Vera, and it's just going to be a treasure for many. I hope you get also get to discover this book. Here is Emil and the After. Welcome to Art Zany Radio. I am honored to be visiting with you again to celebrate your new novel, A Meal and the After. When we first visited, we talked about your young reader novel, The Night Diary. And I have kept that book and thought about those characters many times over the years. Do you think at that time that you would keep thinking and writing about this family? Hmm. Well, first, I'm so glad to be speaking with you again. So thanks for having me. Um, I did not know that I would follow up The Night Diary with another book. Um, It's sort of, I mean, it's a, it's not exactly a sequel. It's more of a companion novel, but it does follow the same characters, and we meet them a few months later. And um, I think I was doing a lot of school visits when The Night Diary came out, and that was a really busy year right after that first and second year that the night diary was out and a lot of my readers kept asking about Emil and wanting to see more from his perspective. And so I thought that would be a really interesting entry point for a new novel if I, if I chose to do so. And, and I really started to miss the world that I had created and miss the characters. So about a year, year and a half after I published The Night Diary, I started A Meal in the After. So that's why there's a, a five-year gap <laughs> between the two books, because it was something I kind of took my time to figure out what new I had to say about these characters and their world. Yeah, and like you said, this book does not require that you are familiar with the story or know these characters. It's it's a brand new story. And I loved how the opening introduces us to this world. And I found myself entering the, that challenging place that Emil lived. It was a new city, a crowded house. There was political uncertainty. And he was really trying to, you know, struggling to understand the world. He's 12 and doesn't know where to turn to share his feelings. He was inspired. 
uh, and this this is a great connection that um, in that prior book, The Night Diary, his sister um, writes letters, and Nisha used encouraged him because she saw that he loved drawing to use drawings to record his days. And the book says he wanted to capture what it felt like when the before became the after, the second it went by. It was like catching air. Oh, love that line. And he he also decides to dedicate the drawings to his mother. And the, the thing that I adore about the both of these books is that it's art that helps these kids navigate their worlds. Nisha through her writing, Emil through his drawings. And I strongly believe in this, that that can be a powerful thing. And for you, how did you discover that um, his drawings would become a key to the story? Yeah, well, I was thinking more about who Emil was. I had set up in the night diary that he does love to draw. Um, and also I, I don't label it in particular, but he is dyslexic and, mm. you know, this is 1947, 1948. So it wouldn't necessarily be detected that way or labeled that way. He was just sort of seen by his father who is a doctor and he's kind of, you know, pushes the kids and to do well in school and to kind of keep moving forward because that's how he lives his life. He sort of sees Emil as not taking school seriously enough or, you know, not being focused enough. And he doesn't really understand fully what Emil is grappling with as far as writing and school. And so drawing is a place that he can express himself freely. He talks about how it's much easier for him to picture something in his head that's three-dimensional rather than flat on the page because the letters sometimes look like other letters. And that's why writing and reading is difficult for him. So Nisha knows that about him. And I wanted to also echo in the Night Diary kind of offering something, writing something in a way to connect to their mother who died when they were babies. Um, This would be the way that Emil would choose to express himself and connect to her. He wouldn't write a diary. So, and I also, when I grew up, I loved both writing and drawing. That was a way that I felt like I could express myself and be free to be who everything that I was. And it was very empowering to kind of write a poem or write a, you know, draw a drawing or do some painting and just feel this, small sense of being in control of my world while I was making that art. Mm, I think that's true for a lot of kids. And Mm -hmm. I I I actually wish it were more true for uh, adults, too, that they would engage in that idea of using those tools as a way to process your day or, you know, remember what happened or just try something. And for Emil, it really opens up the world for him to be able to communicate. And it's he's it's I just think it's so beautiful that it's like he's giving a gift to the mother he didn't know. Like, look, this is my life now. I want you to I want to share with you. And I I found that just uh, really touching. What was it that he believed about the world that led him to devote those drawings to his his mother? Well, he's he's definitely struggling. They've landed now uh, to Bombay. So they've they've gone from what is now Pakistan originally in the city of Mir Prakas, which is also where my own father's family started out before the partition. And then they go to Jodhpur in the night diary. And, and now when the 
A Meal in the After starts, we find them in Bombay, now called Mumbai, mm-hmm. a few months later because their father got a new job, and they have to follow that. And that's the same route that my own father's family took from Mir Prakash to Jodhpur to Mumbai. And he, you know, he's in a new city. It's overwhelming. He doesn't have any friends. He really misses his the simplicity of his old life. And he needs something to kind of ground him and and so this this really helps um gives him this vehicle to kind of be all of those things that was part of what i was looking at in this book is what happens after we survive something very difficult because a lot of books including the night diary um just sort of tell the story of survival tell the story of that kind of immediate crisis and art Mm-hmm. Are these characters going to survive or not? And then if they do, you know, you as the reader feel relieved and happy that they did. And, you know, everything's going to be okay. Um, but it, as we know, that okay isn't always okay after you go through something so hard like the partition. Um, and I honestly was thinking a lot about the pandemic and the early years of the pandemic. This is when I wrote the book and everything we went through, all that uncertainty from the first year of our lives completely changing, Mm -hmm. turning upside down. Um, I had younger kids then and, you know, them home and not being able to see their friends and feeling confused and isolated. And I was feeling confused and isolated along with them. And so now in the, in the more recent last year, you know, some of, some things have gone back to normal. We're not post pandemic yet, but, um, we're trying to rebuild our lives and it's not always linear and it's complicated. And so that was the story I wanted to tell with this book. Yeah. And you do it so beautifully. And I want to, want to give a special shout out to the illustrator because some of Emile's pictures are included in the book. Uh, Prashant mm-hmm. Miranda, I hope I've said yes. that correctly, uh, is, is um, the, the illustrator. I wonder if you had a chance to work with her and I was thinking about that idea of of someone who's trying to draw as if a 12-year-old who's learning to draw is drawing. And if you had yes. a chance to talk about that, what you wanted on the page. Yes, yes. I say him, Prashant. Um, so he, I met Prashant when I was doing events for The Night Diary, and I was invited to Bangalore, India, uh, as part of the Neve Children's Literature Festival, which is a wonderful children's lit festival um, in Bangalore. And he was there too. And I got to know him and he's lovely. And I could see some, you know, I saw some of his work there. And so after the festival, I, I really loved his work. And I looked on his Instagram to see more of his drawings. And he has these beautiful sketches and journalings and watercolors of his own expressions and travels that he takes. And it it just really, I wasn't even sure I was going to write a sequel at that point or a companion book at that point, but the drawings reminded me of the kinds of drawings I would imagine Emil doing. And when I started writing, I asked my editor, could we actually hire somebody to illustrate this book so we could show Emil's drawings and how they kind of progress throughout the novel? Um, Because he actually developed some skill over the the course of the novel and understands himself better as an artist. And so we kind of show that progression. And I suggested Prashant and 
they reached out to him and he was available. And so it was really exciting to be able to partner with him this way um, because I met him and because I appreciated his work even before the novel. Yeah, and I think they add, I mean, I, I, I love books that include illustrations. It, it reminds me of reading and what got me so excited about reading when I was younger. And this book, although marketed for young readers, I think appeals to everyone. And there are so many wisdoms and gems in this book. Uh, one of my favorite is on page 31, when Emil looks at a photograph of his mother that his papa kept in his desk drawer. And Emil mm-hmm. is told that he looks like his mother. And the line is, he didn't really see the resemblance. He wondered what else people saw in him that he couldn't see. I thought, ooh, that's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that can go both ways, right? You can have people in your life who see the possibilities, the wonder, the greatness, and then people who also see your faults and your troubles and your, um, you know, problems. And I just thought I loved um, the, how that was a line in the book. And so how did you connect with how this boy at 12 in that situation might have felt? Well, part of it was thinking about my grandparents on my father's side. So I come from two different backgrounds. My father grew up in India um, and then eventually came to the U.S. and met my mother in um, Poughkeepsie, New York. And she has a Jewish background and my father is Indian Hindu background. Um, and so, but my my Indian grandparents never they died before I was born so I Mm. never knew them and I would only see these two pictures that my father kept still keeps on his dresser of my grandmother and grandfather and they're these very kind of serious pictures that I had to as a kid kind of make up a story about who they were from these pictures and then a few years later I had seen a picture of both my grandmother and my grandfather, pictures I had never seen before. And they're much more informal and casual and they're smiling. And it really changed my sense of them because Mm. they, I always thought, well, they must have been very serious people on these little black and white photos where they're not smiling. And then I just, it opened up this whole new sense of who they were from these different pictures. So somehow that memory of that experience made its way to that scene. Mm, I love that behind, that behind-the-scenes piece of the, the writing of this book. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Paula Granquist. I'm with Art Zaney Radio. We're here with Vera Hirandani talking about Emil and the after. And I'm wondering if maybe now might be a great time for you to read an excerpt from the book to give people a sense of the story. This is a, a part I selected uh, that is right after he meets an uncle that kind of helped them get to their new city, but he really didn't know him that well. Um, but I'll let you add add to the introduction sure. as well. Sure. So, um, right. So this is kind of a, a week or two in where we find them right after um, New Year's in 1948 is when the book starts. And this is a few weeks after. And they meet Ashok, which... Emil calls uncle because it's kind of um, a term of respect for elders in a more familiar way. But he he's actually his second cousin because he's his father's first cousin. So I could see why, you know, you would think that he was um, his uncle because that's really the role that he's sort of playing. Mm-hmm. Emil and Nisha. So they visit him. 
Um, and then Emil is kind of reflecting on what that, you know, what that experience was like and, and kind of what his world is. So chapter four. A few days after the visit, Papa told Emil and Nisha to stay away from the ship docks for a while, that it could get dangerous. There would be many more Hindus and Sikhs coming over from Sindh and Muslims leaving Bombay because of a riot in Karachi between the groups. He explained that not everyone left when they did, and the recent riot would cause a new wave of people to leave their homes. Emil had the sinking feeling that had become too familiar. Just when things were starting to feel normal, something changed to remind him that normal didn't exist anymore. But every day, they went off to school like they always did. School was a 20-minute walk away, housed in a narrow two-story building with a concrete courtyard in the back. Emil was happy to be out of the flat, but he probably would have done a lot better in school if he didn't have to sit and listen for hours, stuffing his long legs underneath the small school desk all day, listening to his teachers talk and talk, made him feel trapped. His legs started to bounce with an itchy electricity. Then his head started to ache, and he couldn't focus anymore. He could only think about going outside. That Wednesday after school, when Dottie took her nap and Kazi prepared their supper, Emil and Nisha did their homework, but Emil ended up drawing like he always did. The other thing they did sometimes was go outside and sit on the front steps of the building and watch Shreya and Ravi, two little kids who lived in the building, play. He wished for friends his age, but Shreya and Ravi were better than nothing. His perfect friend couldn't be any old bloke, though. He had to be the kind of person who had a sense of humor. He had to be the kind of person who didn't get too competitive about who was stronger or who was smarter. Emil wanted someone to go on adventures with, a friend and a bicycle. That was his dream. After what they had been through, was that really so much to ask for? Thank you for, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I thought that was a really good introduction to the characters and the way that they're trying, even all this stuff is going on, to have kind of a normal life. And I I really enjoyed that his wish was just that simple wish, uh, like a lot of kids, right? I just want a bicycle and a friend. And, yeah. But it's more profound in in this book because, you know, of what, all the things that are happening. And mm-hmm. it just, you know, this book shows so much. I've just connected to it in so many different ways. Um, yeah. And uh, so I'm trying to think where we should go from here. I, I think probably yeah. the... Um, the piece that I want to touch on next is how the kids are so observant of what their parents are doing and the family members and the adults in their lives are saying and doing. You know, we as grown-ups kind of have to navigate um, how much to talk about the outside world with our kids. And, you know, they're trying to live their lives. We're trying to live our lives. And and what I loved about Emil is his curiosity. Um, he just can't stop. He likes to ask questions. Um and one of the things that he asks his father is, who are we blessed by? That's on page 20. And I think right. kids ask some of the most wonderful questions. He he just didn't understand why people prayed in different ways. He didn't understand, yeah. you know, what was going on. And, and I think this is such a natural and an important question for kids. What have right. you learned about the struggles between parents and kids and big questions? 
Yeah. Emil is often asking questions that nobody really wants him to ask. <laughs> he, he tends to, I mean, he's young, so he's sort of allowed in a sense to just kind of say what he thinks. He doesn't have a filter. And so it's really reflecting a lot of questions that I have about the world in lots of ways, but he just gets to sort of act them, ask them in this kind of innocent, direct way. And so you're referring to a scene where he's at dinner with his father and his grandmother, Dottie, and his family cook, Kazi, who has become sort of a family member because he crossed the border after they left. They were separated because Kazi is Muslim and stayed in Pakistan, but really felt like this was his family so he ends up in the night diary i'm kind of giving a little spoiler um <laughs> finding the family again and they're reunited so they're all having dinner and emil doesn't want to eat the palak parata which is a certain kind of flat bread with spinach in it and he doesn't like that kind he wants the kind without the spinach mm -hmm. um, and papa says you know we just you know appreciate the food we're blessed to have this food and that sets Emil thinking about just kind of the the way religion is sort of handled in his family and also what's happening during the partition where, you know, the two largest religious groups in India, Hindus and Muslims, you know, are in great conflict because of the partition and for a number of reasons that I could I could get into a, a little bit um, after this but so he's thinking about this at the same time in his family you know his mother who's no longer living is muslim his father is hindu so they're an interfaith couple and so he feels this connection to both of these identities but his father is very secular he doesn't pray um but daddy is hindu and she prays every day and she has her ritual around that and he asks and then kazi who's muslim also prays so mm -hmm. he has two people in his family of different religions who are, you know, practice their faith, but then his father doesn't seem to. And his father says, well, we're just blessed by whoever's watching over us. But, you know, really what's important is not religion, but to just be, you know, a productive, honest member of society. But then when the father says this, Dadi, who finds great solace and routine and comfort in her religious practice, gets upset and she leaves because Papa said that. Mm -hmm. And then um, Nisha's upset at Emil because he's stirring up trouble at dinner and making Papa irritated, which is something they try to avoid. Um, and so she's upset with him. But then Kazi comes over to him later and says, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is as far as, you know, how religious we should be. Um, but, you know, for me, practicing Islam gives me comfort, connects me to my own parents and my family, and just reminds me of just how to be a good person. And that's what it means to me. And that's probably what it means for your grandmother, too. You know, same, different religion, same reason. Um, and so for Emil, he's just really trying to figure out what his own um, religious identity means and why people are turning against each other and, you know, really just trying to understand it. Yeah, I think it's such an important thing because I think there are many, many kids out there who see that in their family or the, their friends' families or, you know, they're starting to understand that not everybody thinks about these things the same way. And it's so important for kids to read about characters who are going through that so they can help you know, themselves learn about right. that. And right. 
it shows us so much how these, you know, labels and lines can be hard to make sense of in the world. And uh, Emil is someone who doesn't accept this. Um, there's a, a point in the book, and I just I love this, that um, he kind of compares this to eating. And, and there's so many great food moments in this book as well. Uh, but it's on page 169. And he, he likes to use his roti to scoop up his curry. And he right. thought that kind of created a balance between the taste of the sweet and the sour and tangy. And his uh, dotty didn't like to mi- mix her food at all. And right. it's it's just such a lovely moment of, you know, how... You know, this world is so puzzling for kids. Um, yeah. And and as his sister says, maybe it's more like roofs and walls. The lines make people feel safer if we give these labels and put these borders and boundaries. And it's just so fascinating how each generation has their own version of this. And, yeah. you know, I, I think sometimes kids are more willing to do things differently. And I found that to be hopeful um, yeah. yeah, yeah. these are thoughts that I had growing up. You know, I grew up in a small town in Connecticut and coming from a mixed background. Um, so both from an interfaith family, Jewish and Hindu and, you know, biracial. And there weren't many kids. There were there weren't any kids that had certainly had my exact background. And there were very few um, Hindu or Jewish kids Um or Muslim kids, you know, I didn't know any South Asian kids, and um, maybe there were two or three Jewish kids in my class. And so I felt really different in my community, but I I really didn't understand why, because Mm. I had always sort of grown up with different cultures in my family. I was sort of used to kind of that sort of pluralism and, you know, understanding different practices and people do things different ways. And that was just my world growing up. And so as I got older, I had to switch schools and I went to a much larger school. And that's when I first kind of confronted people's questions about my background. And so I I was always like, oh, that's, that's strange. Why am I being treated so differently at this new school than I was at the school where we all knew each other so well? Um, And so I I put a lot of those questions into my work Um, and certainly in the with the backdrop of partition and the Mm -hmm. religious tension and conflict in that book, um, you know, I was sort of putting some of my own feelings in that. And as we see, you know, history does keep repeating ourselves and we, we always find ways to divide ourselves, whether it's over religion, race, borders, um, you know, and. I don't know the answers, but part of my part of my writing fiction for myself is to try to explore some of these questions, at least. Yeah. And it's it's such a gift to us to be able to have this book, A Meal in the After, um, for us to explore those questions as well. And we talked a little earlier about how his goal was to find a friend and get a bike, which he knows yeah. are, you know, the bike part especially is really a tall order with his, his papa. Um, but one of the things he does do at school is he, he eats alone, but then one day he is uh, met by Vishal. Is that how you say that? Vishal, Vishal, yep. Vishal, and he's eating his lunch, and and they share the love of drawing, which is what first brings them together. It's such a a sweet moment in the book, and and we gradually learn a little bit more about this mystery boy. And Mm -hmm. um, I I think 
you know, what, what's so fascinating about his story is Emil comes to realize that sometimes it's just luck about where we end up. And yeah. what do you th- want the kids to understand about how to cope through? Because you can't control luck. But, right. you know, there are skills and things that can help us get through. And, and uh, Emil and his uh, family show us some of that. But what have you learned about the skills that we need to help, help get through some of those afters? Yeah. So Emil, you know, is really excited about meeting Vishal and without giving too many spoilers, you right. know, he doesn't realize that Vishal is having a harder time and, and lives in a refugee camp. And, um, and I was able to talk and interview one of my father's oldest friends who he met a few years later when they got to Bombay, Mumbai. So they were teenagers when they met, but, bef- but the five years leading up to that, my father's friend was in a refugee camp um, mm. and had lived in a refugee camp for five years. And he, he told me a lot about those experiences. So that sort of inspired some of Vishal's character. But Emil is really asking himself, you know, I'm going through a hard time. I want friends. I, wa- I miss my old life. I have some scary memories of, of what happened and our very difficult journey over the border. Um, but there are people that don't have a family or don't have a place to live and don't have the stability that I have. And, but he also knows because they did really come close to losing their lives in the journey, um, that it is just sort of chance. It's not because I'm better or more deserving of having these things. It is completely just the roll of the dice. Mm -hmm. And so what is my responsibility if I can help somebody who's having a harder time. Um, So that's a question that he's really kind of organically faced with in the story. Um, And then you'll have to read it to see how it plays out. Yes. It's it's very page turning, right? You you are a constant. I wanted to keep, keep reading instead of taking notes for our interview. So it's, it's an, an amazing book. And I just, I think, is, you know, these, some of these books are so important in the lives of kids because we think that we're protecting kids. We think they don't know about the world and we hope for a better world for them. But they do. These things come back. Those, um, you know, moments of traumatic experiences or, um, you know, those memories of things when it was, you, you know, you wish you could go back, right? Um, right. There's there's right. a, a game that um, he and his sister play, and I think I marked the page, but I forgot to put it. Here it is in my um, notes. Um, it's for anyone who has a copy of the book, it's on 103. And he and his sister play this game. When we go back home, the first thing I'll do is, mm-hmm. and what a lovely thing to uh, you know teach people a way to process what's going on. How were you um, able to you know learn? how to help kids or to, you know, what level of information you want to share in the book about the partition and the, the stories of the riots and things. What were your um, guide guideposts? Right. Well, I, I start my research in really personal places. So, you know, it was extensive talks to my father and my aunt. Um, unfortunately, my grandparents aren't living anymore, so I wasn't able to talk to them. But to other family friends, to my father's friend who was in a refugee camp and some other 
friends that I've met along the way who live in Mumbai and have, you know, connections to the partition from their background. And then, of course, reading books and understanding the larger, more political, academic aspect of the history. But what I'm really looking at is what it what it just felt like for the ordinary person to be going through this. So oral histories beyond just my own, you know, family and friends were really the pieces that I used to construct this story. And then I would use my own personal experiences to try to get to some kind of emotional truth um, that I felt like had some sort of parallel to what they were experiencing. So I did think a lot about the pandemic. I did think about the fact that, you know, we were in lockdown and then eventually my kids went back to school and hybrid and wearing masks all day <laughs> and all of the things that we went through that were really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we were safe and we were able to stay in our home, in our bubble. And we did know people that were not as safe. And we knew people who experienced loss in a way that we were lucky enough not to. And so how did we support them? You know, and so that was always trying to reach out and support people that were having a harder time as much as we could. And then also understanding that the, you know, it is just the luck of the draw that, that we were okay and safe. So what do we owe kind of our community um, because of that? And so those were questions I asked and helped my kids kind of ask themselves um, in ways that we could give back. And that made us feel more Mm -hmm. empowered and in control and kind of better, you know, it's, it's a, it's a win-win situation. So um, that was certainly a lesson we learned going through all of that. Yeah. And that's, I think that's powerful for kids to understand. And it brings up great conversations uh, because it's, you know, we, none of us know at any point our lives could be split into that before and after, after in so many different ways. And I think that that is an important thing for us to talk about, right? To, uh, and for kids to be aware of. And, and so I find this book, even though it's uh, geared towards that younger reader group, it, 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 I, I feel like anyone could take away many things from it. So I thank you for this book. I, I think I want to close with uh, talking about um, the food in the book. I mentioned this briefly, so it'll kind of take a turn <laughs> because I, I found myself really hungry as I was reading this. And um, I, st- I started like looking up pictures online of like, I've heard of that, but I'm not sure what that is. Or, um, you know, looking at recipes and thinking, oh, yeah, we got to go uh, go get some of that. Or I, maybe I can learn how to make that. Um, and then you have a glossary in the back of the book, which I greatly appreciated because it does kind of, this is new to a lot of us some of the yeah. things. And so what are, what has been the response of the kids to the foods of different cultures that have been in your, in your prior books? Yeah, I mean, I love writing about food for all different kinds of reasons. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> I, and I do too. <laughs> all of my books, every single one of them. And um, I think it's because I really enjoy reading books that feature very specific eating habits and meals, no matter, you know, whether it's about learning somebody else's culture or really seeing your own culture in the book. It's both of those things. Yes. Um, and also just the specificity and the, the sensory um, 
you know, it brings the the scene alive in a, in a sensory way. So it's a great way when I teach writing, I talk to kids and adults. Um, food is one way to kind of invoke all of that um, great sensory detail in the scene. You know, what does it look like, smell like, taste like, um, feel like, all of those things. So that's a big reason why I like writing about food. And, and I think, you know, it's something we are constantly thinking about as human beings, uh-huh. you know, what we're going to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, you know, hopefully we have enough food, right? And what would it feel like to not have enough food? And um, so that's all in play. But I also just wanted to celebrate some of my favorite um, Indian foods and some of my father's favorite Indian foods. And and that's the way that I've always connected to that side of myself and that side of my family, um, through food, which I think is very common, I think, with people in all backgrounds, but mm-hmm. people with mixed backgrounds, I've noticed now meeting people from all kinds of different mixed backgrounds that food is somehow the the way that you kind of ground yourself in that identity that maybe you don't always feel enough of because you're always kind of in between um, and maybe feeling not enough of, you know, not Indian enough or not Jewish enough. I know Mm. I've experienced some of those things, but because I've been eating in those food cultures my whole life, that's a place that I do feel like I know what I'm talking about in that way. So um, that's part of the reason why I use food. And I wanted to include the glossary because I wanted to make sure that kids who maybe didn't have access right away to Google an unfamiliar term or something would have that at their fingertips. So because it's being released in the U.S. and some people might have a South Asian background and be really excited to see their favorite food in the book. And some right. people maybe never heard of the food. And maybe discovering something anew or maybe you know, willing to go to a different restaurant or, or ask, look up a recipe or you know, find a cookbook at the library and try something. Yeah, I yeah. I love that, and so I suppose the last thing I want to ask is is what are your hopes for the book? And you know, are, are do you think you'll be spending more time with Emil and Nisha and this family? Yeah, well, never say never because I didn't <laughs> know I was going to write you know another follow up, and I did. So I am not writing one at the moment, but who knows what mm-hmm. will happen? Who knows what the future holds? Um, but I really hope. For all readers, and I say my books are from, you know, ages 9 to 99. I agree. um, (laughs) All readers to see it as a space where they can bring their whole self to it. That's that's a theme in a lot of my books because there are some ways that I've – I felt misunderstood as kind of an artsy kid who, you know, didn't always have the focus or attention that I was supposed to in school. And then my own kids have had some learning differences. And so I I tend to write about that idea of kind of feeling maybe outside of things or not feeling fully accepted in, in their world. And, and how do you kind of give yourself permission to be everything that you truly are and then, you know, show that to the world and then find that acceptance. And also just the way that we heal from something um, difficult isn't linear. It's messy. It doesn't always make sense. And so I didn't want to show that, you know, now that they survived, everything's okay and kind of tie it up into this neat bow because that's not how life is. And so I want, I hope that people find, find it um, useful 
to think about kind of how they're dealing with hard things in their life or, how, you know, accepting themselves in all of that complexity. Oh, it's such a beautiful book. And I want to thank you for the gift of Emil and the after. I hope that everybody goes out to their local bookstore and finds a copy, uh, looks at the library and shares this book with a book club, uh, you know, student in their life, someone, because there's a lot in this story. And I'm greatly appreciative of you spending time on Artsany Radio today. Well, thank you. I really loved our conversation. I did, too. Thank you very much. Again, I want to thank Vera here in Nandani for sharing her story. This is book. The new is Amil, A-M-I-L, and The After. And I encourage you to go and check out some of her other books, The Whole Story of Half a Girl, How to Find What You're Not Looking For, uh, also The Night Diary, which is the one that talks about Emile's sister and her story using writing to help herself through uh, a way. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation and to share this book with everybody and hope that you'll add some more reading to your world. And of course, you've been listening to Art Zany Radio for the Imagination, and I want you to also add some Art Zany to your life. Thank you so much for listening. In the meantime, until next time, enjoy your imagination. You've been listening to Art Zany, radio for the imagination, with your host, Paula Granquist. Art Zany is brought to you each week by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts in Faribault. The Paradise Center for the Arts is a vibrant cultural and artistic gathering spot in historic downtown Faribault. The Paradise is committed to offering high-quality visual and performing art opportunities for Faribault and our region. Regular events spotlight some of the best artists and musicians in our area and throughout Minnesota and the Upper Midwest. Our beautifully restored facility includes art galleries, classrooms, clay and textile labs, a gift shop and rehearsal spaces, in addition to a 300-seat auditorium. Visit Paradise Center for the arts.org for a full schedule of events or call our box office at 507-332-7372.